Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost in year C. In the year 2022, it is proper 28 for our scripture readings. So we're going with Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 for our Old Testament text. And then the epistle is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Optionally, you might start with verses 1 through 5, uh, but verses 6 through 13 will be included for all people. And then as we turn to the gospel text, it also has an optional reading. So it's Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 28. And optionally, you can tack on verses 29 through 36. So we turn to our Old Testament reading first from Malachi chapter 4. And just to give you the theme of the weekend, it's the end of the world. That's the theme. (laughs) End of the world readings in scripture. And we'll see that again next week as well as it's the last Sunday of the church year. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. It's important to recognize as we get started here that this is the very end of the book of Malachi, which means it is also the end of the Old Testament as Malachi is the final book written not just in the order we structure our Old Testament in English, but actually chronologically speaking, Malachi written the latest of all the prophets, right around 400. So it's the end of the Old Testament, which means it actually is the end of divine revelation from God through his prophets to his people, all the way until you get to John the Baptist. For roughly 400 years, God is silent. Now, silent isn't fully the right way to say it because the Lord speaks and stuff happens. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that well, by, by the power of his word, Jesus upholds the universe. That never stopped. But his revelation to his people did. It's not until Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple and promises the birth of a child to an elderly couple, that this changes. It's called the intertestamental period, the time between the testaments, old and new. It's clearly a text here that we just read about the last day, the final judgment that is to come. The day is coming, and it burns like an oven, So the fire is lit to cook. And those who will be cooked, well, that day that is coming shall set them ablaze, the arrogant and all evildoers. Evildoers is pretty straightforward. Evil versus good. To do the things not of the Lord, but of our own sinful flesh, our own sinful desires. To break his commandments to live for ourselves. 
arrogant, prideful, boastful. Again, those who seek themselves and not others. They'll be set ablaze, an easy reference to hell here, as we think of normally the picture of hell being a place of fire that never extinguishes. They're also described as stubble. A reference to the harvest field after the farmer has gone through his field and harvested his crops. He has cut them down from the, the bottom near the ground. And so some of you have probably seen this as you've driven by on the highways, or I mean, some of you are farmers and have seen this yourself. But the field that all that's left is the nubs, and you've just got a whole whole organized row of nub after nub after nub. That's the picture here as well, that they will be cut down and cast into the fire. Burned. That day will leave them neither root nor branch, a way to say no future, no hope. They have been cut off. They've been cast out. But for you who fear my name, so the text turns from the negative to the positive, to those who will have a different outcome on the last day. God speaks directly to us here. For you who fear my name, and the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. We do need to talk about fear my name. That's the word fear. There's a legitimate idea in Scripture that we would fear God. Jesus himself talks this way in the Gospel account of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And contextually there, he's referring to himself because of his authority on the day of judgment. We fear only God. There's many things in this world that Christians are tempted to fear. Plagues, pandemics, hurricanes, earthquakes, famine, joblessness, homelessness, murder, violence, all kinds of things, right? We're not supposed to fear those because any of those things, if they hit us, what do they do to us? They send us to Christ. Death is not the Christian's enemy. Death is not to be feared. For if I die, when I die, if, by the way, is the more accurate one, I get to be with Christ. He will care for me. He will hold me until the day of resurrection, when he puts body and soul back together again, glorifies this body that I may live with him forever. I say if is the better way to say it, because if Christ returns today, we won't die. Whoever's left at the time of his second coming will not die. Thanks be to God. We don't know if it'll happen in our day or not. But we prepare for it. We live as though Christ may yet return today. Fear of the Lord, then, fear of his name, is 
more than just a respect. Yes, there's a level of respect in that. But it's trust. Even with the thing, other things we fear, right? Um, you fear an earthquake because you trust it can harm you. You trust it can turn your life upside down in an instant. Fear and trust go hand in hand. We fear God means that we trust him, both in his almighty power to destroy, but we also, as Christians, we know of his almighty power to save. That he has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and he's done it for us. So we fear him, yes. We really do. We truly fear him. But at the same time, as we come to fear him, he also says, do not be afraid. My peace I give to you. And as your pastor probably ends his sermons on the weekend, speaking of the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. All right, so the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The point with the Son here appears to be the contrast. So you've got the day coming like an oven, a blazing fire that sets them ablaze. But for us, the sun is a blazing fire, but it doesn't set us ablaze. It heals. The book of Revelation will twice tell us in chapter 21, verse 23, and chapter 22, verse 5, that paradise will not have a sun. A lot of people will say you shouldn't take that literally, and normally in Revelation we don't. But we also know that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and that before God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, there was light in this creation of his. And Revelation in those contexts describes God himself as being the light. And there will be neither day nor night anymore. So I... I have no issue taking it that literally, the idea that the sun and the moon and the stars won't need to be there, especially the sun singled out in this, because Christ will give light to his people. I am the light of the world. And taking that a little bit more literally is the direction Revelation seems to be going there. Written by the same author, by the way, John's Gospel is where we get the eye and the light of the world quote, and then Revelation also penned by the Apostle John at the Spirit's inspiration. So the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You think of perhaps Matthew 23, verse 37 here, where Jesus, as he mourns and laments over the city of Jerusalem, that they would not repent, that they would not trust in, in him and hear him, he says that he would have gathered them under his wings like a, a hen with her chicks. But they didn't want it. They refused. So the picture of, of protection with the wings is certainly there. Healing connected here as well because this is what the last day brings for us. Healing, restoration, this body that is broken in so many ways, more than I could ever fathom. 
will be restored, glorified, made like new. And we have no idea what that will actually look like. I mean, you can have fun conversations about it, right? Uh, Will we all be like this prime age in paradise? Will we be the age that we are when we end this life? Somehow, some way? We just have no idea. Um, What remains? What changes of the body? It is this body. The scriptures are very clear about that. Christians are not Gnostics. We don't believe the body to be evil and only the spirit to be good. We don't believe that only the spirit lives on. Christ has promised to raise this body from the dead. My body, your body. And to somehow make them perfect. By the power that is his alone. The rest of verse 2 is a simple visual picture of the joy of paradise. And so you think of a a young calf, just a a baby, kind of dashing, galloping through an open field. It's our picture here. The excitement, the joy that we will have in paradise. Verse 3 seems to refer to the day of judgment itself. That we would tread down the wicked, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. They were referred to as stubble before, burned up, turned into ash. And so now, as Christ's people, we are victorious over them in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. And because we are victorious over them, we will trample them. As we're running around in excitement and joy, uh, they will be destroyed. Revelation chapter 6, the saints under the throne crying out essentially, How long, O Lord? Wondering when he will take vengeance against the people who have martyred them. Romans chapter 12, we are taught that vengeance belongs only to the Lord, that he will repay, and that in the meantime we are simply to love our enemies. If they are hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, you are heaping burning coals on their heads, hardening their hearts, preparing them for the judgment, if they will not repent. And those kinds of texts seem applicable here as well. Verse 4 stands alone in ESV. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So right there at the end, a reference to Mount Sinai when God visits with Moses on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and following there gives him the Ten Commandments as we would call them on the two tablets of stone and that the people are supposed to follow them, obey them, trust in the word of the Lord and live by it. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Now we know that we are not saved by our keeping of the law. We are saved by Christ's keeping of the law, if you want to put it that way. It is that he is perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He did what we failed to do. He took our place. He took our punishment upon himself upon the cross. 
Lastly, we come to verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God promises to send Elijah before the last day. Elijah the prophet is widely considered within Judaism to have been the chief prophet, the great prophet. Part of this may indeed be that he never died. The Lord took him up into heaven without death. And the the mantle, if you can want to phrase it that way, is passed to his servant Elisha. And so many then are expecting a literal return of Elijah, the same man in the flesh, into this world to show that all of this is about to happen, take place. A prophet to once again speak to the people. Now, Elijah actually does come. If you go and you find your transfiguration accounts in the New Testament, you will see that Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus on the mountain, and the apostles who are there, Peter, James, and John, they see it. They see Moses, and they see Elijah, both. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets is what they called the Old Testament scriptures in their era. They weren't old yet because they didn't have the new. But we can take this less literally than that because Jesus himself describes this in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17. So from Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Speaking of John the Baptist, and then he says it again, verse 12 of chapter 17, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Again, John the Baptist. Jesus calls John the Baptist the Elijah who was to come, and that they did not receive him, but instead ultimately they killed him and so they would also kill the Christ the son of man which is a very much an Ezekiel reference as well Uh, Ezekiel uses that son of man language throughout his book it becomes for some reason I, I don't know that I can tell you why but it becomes Jesus favorite name for himself at least it seems that way as you read through the gospel accounts he he calls himself that a lot So before the last day, Elijah will come. Before the last day, John the Baptist would come. And he has. The prophet speaks, points people to God, points people to his plan of salvation. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
That's definitely fourth commandment related in this, that the the idea being if you honor your parents, you will live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So uh, the promised land was the reference of that. But honoring father, honoring mother, and so turning children to their fathers. Ephesians 6 talks the other way. As, as Paul exhorts fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So both and here and that. But you'll also see, if you turn to Luke's gospel account, as the angel Gabriel visits with Zechariah in the temple, announcing that John the Baptist would be born to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, picking up on Malachi chapter 4 and carrying it through. I don't know what order Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written in. Which one came first? That's debated quite a bit. John certainly comes later. But if, if Luke 1 is the first chapter of the New Testament to be recorded and bring us to the birth of Christ, which, I mean, Luke starts with the birth narrative of Christ, unlike Mark. Matthew has a birth narrative as well. But anyway, just picking up on the idea that you go from the end of the Old Testament and then you would flip to the first word spoken is a word spoken about John the Baptist, the Elijah who was to come. I mean, you've got the 400-year time gap, and it's bookended on both sides here by the Elijah the prophet coming. So it begins, the gap begins with this word here from Malachi chapter 4, and then the gap ends when you get to the gospel accounts. And again, Luke 1, chronologically speaking, would be the first event of the New Testament the angel coming to Zechariah in the temple happens before the angel appears to Mary and Joseph. John is born first. And John is the Elijah who was to come. It's really a neat picture. Um, when you look at the change between testaments that way, we lose that a little bit by putting Matthew first in English. But again, it's not... Not too important there. Just see the connection, I hope, between the two texts. Our text now turns in the epistle to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, verses 1 through 5 are optional here, but most of you would have verses 6 through 13. So let me read that optional section first. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I love how it starts, finally, brothers. It is the introduction of the final chapter of this epistle, this letter. So it's a good spot for a chapter break. On the other hand, uh, chapter 2 
ended last week, those last two verses of the chapter sounded very much like they could have been the close of the letter as well. So it's like he closed, and then he said, and now for the closing thoughts, right? You've ever had a, a pastor do that? You thought the sermon was over. And then he just shifts gears and goes some more. Uh, that's essentially what it feels like a bit here. And it's the word of God, so we're not complaining. Just a little humor in it. Pray for us. So as Christians, we pray for one another, but Paul's specific in the prayer request here. That the word of the Lord, that the word of God would precede their work. So as Paul and the others are going about doing their missionary work, going from one community to another to share Christ and him crucified, that the law, the word of God, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, would go first. That there would have already been somebody to have planted the seeds so that Paul's task, Silvanus or Silas, Timothy, their task would be simpler as they would be watering a soil that has already been worked. May the word of God speed ahead, be honored, as happened among you. So Paul here recognizing that even the Thessalonian Christians, the church that he did plant on his missionary journeys, they had already heard the word of God. Paul's primary way of doing evangelism, as far as we see in Scripture, as he goes from one city to another, is he almost always goes straight to the synagogue, the Jewish church, basically. They had the Old Testament. They had the Law and the Prophets. And his method of doing it, he'd go and he would take the scriptures and he would show the people how they were pointing to Jesus. Much like Jesus himself will do in the end of Luke's gospel on the road to Emmaus, showing those two men how all of the Old Testament pointed to himself. And the second part of the prayer request is that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Wicked and evil, very much synonymous, so emphatic here. The point, not deliverance for their own sake. Paul is not praying to be delivered from wicked men so he can live a nice earthly life in comfort and luxury. He's praying for deliverance from evil men so that he can keep preaching the gospel, so that he can go to yet another community, to yet another people, plant yet another church. Because if wicked men capture him, that work is hindered. Now notice how he doesn't actually let it get hindered. He writes several of his epistles while he's imprisoned. And if he's killed, that also hinders the work. So the prayer request, twofold that the word of God would go first and that the apostles and the others who would preach that word of God would be free to do so. Not all have faith, and that's too true of a statement there. Uh, We know this to be true today as well. Not all have faith, not all believe. However, verse 3, the Lord is faithful. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is what our hope hinges on, is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That he is who he said he is, that he will do what he said he would do. That his death forgives our sins, that his resurrection means we will live forever as well. 
that he is preparing a place for us in paradise even now, and that if he goes to prepare a place for us, as he tells his disciples at the start of John chapter 14, he will also come back to take us to be with him where he is. The Lord is faithful, even though we aren't. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So it's turned from a prayer of Paul asking that the people would pray for him. It's turned to, well, flip around that Paul is now praying for the Lord to care for the church. Now notice, establish you and guard you against the evil one. You can certainly connect to John 10 verses 28-29 where we talk about no one being able to snatch us from the Father's hand. The devil is not strong enough to steal you away from God. That's why he deceives you. He works in deception, not strength. He tries to cause doubt, sowing seeds of chaos. I do want to point out guard you against the evil one. The Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, Matthew chapter 6, has the exact phrase, deliver us from the evil one. I know we don't pray it in the Lord's Prayer, we just pray deliver us from evil. The Greek is from the evil one. Uh, substantival use, right? You get an adjective from the evil. When you put the, the in front of the adjective, you know we're no longer talking about an adjective. We're talking about a noun, a substantival use of an adjective. I don't know why we translate it this way here and not also in the Lord's Prayer. I would argue this is the correct way to translate that Greek phrase. Same Greek phrase shows up in both spots. The Lord's Prayer is deliver us from the evil one. Jesus very specific as he teaches us to pray. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you. So Paul knows the faith of the Thessalonian Christians. He's a spiritual father to them. So just like you know your own child, he knows them. And he knows that they will do the things that they're commanded by the apostles. So in this letter, stand firm, do not be afraid, do not be misled about those who say that the return of Christ has already happened, pray, etc. Now, the text that most churches will be reading this weekend is going to jump back in with, now we command you, brothers. So we'll come back to that here momentarily. But first, may the Lord direct your hearts, verse 5, to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So this is Paul's prayer for them, that their hearts would always be pointed to God's love for them and Christ's faithfulness. And this is why it is the preaching task to always point you to Jesus. Why Lutherans get accused of being Christocentric. It's a nice big word. What is that? Five syllables? Anyway, um, Christ-centered. We put Jesus at the center of everything we do. Why? His faithfulness is what it's all about. We don't focus on the Spirit very much because if the Spirit has done his job, his job is to point you to Christ. 
So if you're focusing on Jesus, the Spirit has done his job. And Jesus' job is to return you to the Father, to make you at one with the Father. And he's done that. We are reconciled. We have peace with God. And the day will come when we receive, where, when we will see both the Father and the Son, and also the Spirit. We'll see them face to face. All right, so we're going to get into the text that is the normal text for the weekend, verses 6 through 13. Technically, verse 13 is the start of a new paragraph. The chapter, chapter 3, is the final chapter here in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, but we don't read to the end of it. It's 18 verses long, so we don't get the last five verses. Verse 13, again, shifting into a new paragraph. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 12, and then we'll double back at the end, and we'll take in verse 13 once more. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So here's that command again we had from verse 4, that they would do the things that we command. He commands them in the name of Jesus. So that stresses the sincerity of this command, but also that it's not just a request, it's from God. Keep away from a brother walking in idleness. Not the tradition you receive from us. That's going to be the tradition of working hard and diligent and not being a burden to another. Idleness. What is the trouble with idleness of not working? Part of the trouble is that it's not what we're made for. We were made to care for this creation. So if you're idle, you're not caring for the creation. You're not doing what God has made you to do. This is not good. Also, you are unnecessarily burdening the people around you. This isn't to talk about the person, like as you think of the gospel accounts, the paralytic or something like that. This is talking about the man who can work and chooses not to. This is not good. Other people care for him as they should. This is good, but they shouldn't have to. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 will tell the thief to stop thieving and instead find work, honest work to do so that he will have something to give to his neighbor. You can't be idle and generous at the same time. You won't have anything to give. So you're not helping your community. You're not loving your neighbor. You're not caring for the creation. You can see, hopefully, 
what makes this so rotten. And so what's the tradition they received from us? Well, it was they watched Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy work. They watched them labor. They worked in addition to preaching the gospel. They worked diligently so as to not be a burden, but instead to be an aid, a help, to further strengthen this community of Christians. Now do note verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right. There are other passages that talk about paying your pastor. Don't muzzle the ox while it works. Uh, Let the ox eat. Care for your pastor. But here, Paul is saying that they specifically did what they did to give an example to be imitated. They lived among the Thessalonians for however long it was. They worked diligently among them so the Thessalonian Christians would see that diligence and do likewise that they would be diligent workers, hard workers, willing to care for one another, willing to care for their community, and not idle. Verse 10 gives the strict instruction. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, I admit I remember being taught as a child growing up that the context culturally, culturally around this is that some of the Thessalonian Christians were so convinced of Christ's imminent return, I'm coming soon, that they reasoned, why bother with the harvest? Why, why plant the crop in the spring? We won't be here this fall to harvest it anyway. I don't know if that's actually true. As I've read and studied the scriptures as an adult, I, I don't actually see that in the text. I guess it could be. But there are people not working. And the point of that would be, as, I, as we build upon that idea, even if Christ did come back today, we, we don't know, as we wake up in the morning, we don't know that he will. We trust that he is coming back, and we believe that he could come back today. And so we do live our day with urgency and love for our neighbor. We seek to share Christ with those who need to hear of him, because this could be the final day. But at the same time, we also know he might not come back today. He might come tomorrow or the day after that. And so we do make plans. We work in such a way as to position ourselves to also be of service to our neighbor tomorrow. If I just kick up my feet and do nothing, what do I have to give my neighbor tomorrow? Again, the picture we've been talking about. So I could see it being the, the context around it, but I don't know it for sure. Verse 11 is a wordplay. And I'm, I love the fact that the wordplay works in the ESV text. The Greek and Hebrew scriptures, wordplays, don't always come into English for us. But this is, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I'm not sure that's exactly word for word the Greek here for us. Uh, for we hear some walking among you idly, not working, but 
working around might be might be the the way to to work that text and from Greek into English. Um, sorry, I was staring at the Greek text there for a moment. I don't normally do that for the podcast, but the wordplay is very very easy to see in the Greek. Um, the the base verb for to work is ergo, um, and it's the participle of it, and it, it's repeated. So not working, but working around. It's repeated again with the prefix peri around, like perimeter in English, the distance around something. So to be a busybody, instead of working, you're working around is the, the actual phrase, the, the verb's root, what it comes from, etymology. It's the gossiper. It's the one who goes from place to place learning what they can at this location and then going and sharing that at the next location and picking up some more things that they can share at another location. And they spend their day just going from place to place doing such things. They are not encouraging people. but spreading rumors, most likely. The word doesn't necessarily say that they're spreading rumors, but we know how those conversations go with our sinful nature. We know the temptations that come. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, notice how that shuts up the gossip, and to earn their own living. Don't be reliant if you don't have to be, don't be reliant upon the generosity of others. God has made you. He's given you the ability to function, to work. So work. Again, so you have something to give to somebody else. We are to be generous as Christ is generous. If we're being idle, we cannot be generous. That's the danger. Lastly, verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So not just any work, but specifically the good works that the Lord has laid up in advance that we would walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 speaks very clearly of this. In his book, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, Pastor Will Whedon gives the, the beautiful little picture of this like the Easter egg hunt when you were a child. And you go about the yard and you find those little eggs and you pick one up and how many of us would hold up that one egg and say, I've found it and we're done. No, you put the egg in your basket and you enjoy going about looking for the next one. And he uses that as a picture of God's good works, that they are his gift to us that we would be able to do them. And so we're looking in our lives, in our daily life, we're looking for the opportunities, we're looking for the good works that the Lord has placed before us that we can do them. They're gifts from God because he's choosing to involve us in his family business, in his kingdom. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need us to do anything. He's God. He's all-powerful. He created all of this just by speaking. It's a gift that we get to be a part of it. And so, yeah, uh, we keep looking for more good work to do. Uh, it's a beautiful, 
uh, a little analogy there. I really appreciate that one. Thank you, Pastor Whedon. Um, the other way I would say to look at this verse, verse 13 here, is just our own encouragement. It is easy to grow weary doing good. And that you've been telling your, your loved one, maybe it's a, a grown child who's abandoned the faith, maybe it's a, a sister or a friend, whoever it may be, you've been telling them about Christ, you've been trying to do good, and it's not working. You're not seeing the fruit of that labor, and you grow weary. Maybe it's not worth it. Or you've been... You've been diligently laboring only to see the community around you getting worse. Is it worth it? This is where we remember that it's not up to us. That as we share the gospel, it is not up to us. It is the Holy Spirit who does the work. It is the Holy Spirit who creates faith. It is the Holy Spirit who brings repentance. And that work that we do of preaching the word, planting the seed, watering the seed, however you want to phrase it, the Spirit will be at work. The word does not go about unaccomplished. It does what the Lord sends it to do. You are a servant of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. But you're not in control. So don't try to be. Just do what he's given you to do. And then if it's general service to your community, general good works not just the preaching of the gospel. Again, this is what we're called to do. Yes, this creation is dying. This creation is falling apart. It's broken. And it's broken by us ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's been, it's been getting worse. Creation groans, according to Romans 8, waiting for the restoration of its caretakers. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So why bother? Well, let's just let this one fall apart. Why bother? It's what God made us for. This is his creation. He once called all of this very good. And he is upholding it by the power of his word. Again, Hebrews 1.3. So we are to look at it as he does. He sees fit to give it a new day. So we thank him for the new day. He sees fit to feed the birds and so we seek to feed the birds. It's, the, it's that simple. Uh, may that be an encouragement to you as you go about what the Lord has called you to do. And our gospel text from Luke chapter 21 is about the end of the world. Kind of. Verses 5 to 28 and optionally verses 29 to 36. I say kind of because this text from Jesus is going to flex between the end of the world and the fall of Jerusalem. It's going to bounce back and forth. It starts with the fall of Jerusalem, which is an event that happens in 70 AD. The Roman armies will come against the city of Jerusalem and they'll destroy it. They'll tear down the temple and it hasn't been rebuilt to this day. That's something most Christians are probably familiar with because unfortunately far too many Christians think the temple actually needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem in order for the end of the world to happen. That's a very misguided and misled understanding of, of Scripture, certainly. 
Christ could come back right now. He's not waiting for anything any longer, and I, I hope that you'll see that as we work our way through this text. I'm not sure it does that quite as clearly as the Matthew version of this account does, um, but it does it pretty well anyway. So let's go ahead and take a look. We'll start with verses 5 through 9. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. I'm going to take that final phrase there, the end will not be at once, is kind of the connection point to distinguishing between the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world. Um, It won't be at once. These are two separate events that we're discussing here, but they're blended together almost in this text. So the, the disciples, or in this case, Luke simply records that there were some speaking of it, Uh, noting how beautiful the temple was. And Jesus turns to teach and says that this is all going to be destroyed. It will all be torn down. Not a single one of these stones will be left upon another. Um, These are massive stones, by the way, which is why the people were partly impressed with them. They're not your, like, cement block foundation of your house where a man could pick one of these things up. No, they're too big for that. Do some digging into what the temple is designed to be. Uh, It's quite fascinating. It's easy to see. Once you know the details, it's easy to see why they were so impressed. But not our topic for the day, because Jesus has said none of it matters. It's all going to be torn down. So... They ask, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign that's about to happen? They expect something will be a warning. Jesus' response is going to end up being, first, more about the end of the world here. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, the time is at hand. I have no idea throughout history how many, many has been. But in every era, there is always at least one. Uh, I remember on uh, social media from a a brother in Christ in another continent, seeing him talk of his concern about somebody in his country that was doing this very thing at at that time, claiming to be the forerunner of Christ. He got a lot of reassurance and a lot of people pointing him to verses like these in Scripture Do not be led astray. This is the warning that we had for those of you that were following along the Proper's 27 reading last week. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is what Paul had to say to them, that they would not be led astray. That you can't miss the return of Christ. You won't miss it. But what leads up to that is wars, tumults, We'll have more in the second paragraph here in just a moment, so we'll have to come back to wars and tumults. But do not be terrified. These things must first take place. 
do not be terrified. Do not fear. This is true generally for the Christian, but also in this. I mean, I've, I've seen this recently as well. Um, as there's a, a war full, uh, going on in Europe right now and the threat of nuclear warfare. I've seen a person despairing and wondering what the point of even going about their day is when everything could just be wiped out anyway. Don't live that way. Go about the work you've been given to do. Christ may yet come back today, and if he does, hallelujah, thanks be to God, it's all over. And we'll be raised immortal, imperishable. But we don't know, so we work while we can. All right, verses 10 through 19. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Jesus here continuing with the conversation about the end of the world and the signs of the end of the world. So we had wars and tumults, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, so conflict, violence, great earthquakes, famine, pestilence. Have these things all happened? I mean, these things are all going on all the time around the world. The return of Christ is imminent. It is soon. He has promised it to be so, and he is faithful. There is no longer anything that must first occur by like biblical lists, or right? all these things are going to happen before the time comes. All of these things have already happened and are continuing to happen and will continue to happen until Christ comes. There are actually a couple of biblical principles about what must happen before Christ returns, but there's no way for us to actually know them. Um, from Second Peter chapter 3, essentially the Lord's patience is why he is yet to return because he wants more people to repent. He's giving them time and the opportunity to repent. Um, a revelation. If you read through chapter 6 and chapter 7, you'll, you'll pick up on this in there. Um, basically, the idea that there are yet more Christians who must be, be martyred for their faith. And that when the last martyr falls, Christ returns. So every time a martyr dies, for their faith, for giving testimony to the name of Jesus in the gospel. 
and also every time a person is baptized and welcomed into the kingdom. Both of these things inch us ever closer to Christ's return. Don't wait to baptize your child. You shouldn't anyway because it's a gift Christ has given. It's a thing Christ has commanded. It, It grants the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. Why would we want to withhold such a thing anyway? The early church argued about how fast we should baptize after a baby was born. There was a guy who thought, fantastic uh, connection to circumcision. Let's baptize our kids on the eighth day. Fetus, F-I-D-U-S was his name. And the response that he got was that everybody thought he was wrong and waiting too long. That there was no reason to withhold baptism from any person born and that baptism should be preferred on the first or second day. And we wait until babies are months and months and months old and try and get family schedules aligned. Forget family schedules. The baby's been in the womb nine months. Plan it in advance. If you really want to make it a thing where people can come, set it on the calendar. Our babies do on this day. The following Sunday, we're going to have him baptized. If he comes early, we might have to baptize him early and the, you know your trip can be canceled. We put way too much worldliness into our baptisms. The family of Christ gathers together every Sunday. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They truly are. Don't withhold baptism. And especially once we, again, read that Second Peter text and realize that Christ's return is, is waiting for the last Christian to be added into the kingdom. Man, if it's my kid... Thanks be to God. (laughs) What a wonderful gift. For both of us, all of us. Anyway. But before all of this, so there was a point in history where Christ's return being soon did still have to wait on things that would be observed in this world. The disciples being persecuted. But by the time the New Testament is finished being written down, that's all occurred. So, again, it can come at any time. They will lay hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. This is the thing. As a Christian, we don't want to be dragged before a king or a governor because we stole something. That does not do well for the name of Christ doesn't do well for what we've been given to do. We want to be dragged before kings and governors because of Christ. Matthew 5, blessed are you if you are persecuted. It's pretty straightforward. As Christians living in the United States, a country of luxury and comfort, we've often fled from this opportunity. I'm not saying seek martyrdom, But most of the history of the church has viewed martyrdom as a gift, not a curse. And we've unfortunately, I think, fallen the other direction here. You can talk about the various apostles um, and and how they endured these things. Uh, You can read the book of Acts and you'll see many of these things happening again and again as Peter is imprisoned, as Paul is imprisoned, 
you'll see them uh, being brought before kings and governors. Paul will have to go before Felix and Festus, and then he will petition to actually go before Caesar himself. As far as we know, Paul's first journey to Rome for that purpose was not only shipwrecked, but ultimately, um, it doesn't seem like he ever saw Caesar that first trip. But a few years later, he's back in prison in Rome, and it does seem that he gets to make his appeal before Caesar and that Caesar executes him. 68 AD, his letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, uh, related to that idea. All right, I know I need to keep moving. Uh, So this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is what the martyrs have done. They bear witness as they're being put to death. They share the reason for the hope that is within them. Uh, that's alluding to 1 Peter 3.15, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the apostles, specifically verse 14, are told to settled in their mind beforehand not to meditate on how to answer. In other words, don't worry about what you'll say, because I will give you a mouth and wisdom. None of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The apostles are told that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them is going to give them the ability to speak and to proclaim Christ in such ways uh, that it's not refutable. It's not to say the world won't just kill them anyway, but the world won't be able to refute them. Now, we are told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, to give a defense. We should be prepared, whereas the apostles didn't need to be. They're... Again, they have the Holy Spirit poured out on them on Pentecost, and they can speak in tongues. And that doesn't mean what most Christians today think it means, but the idea that they could speak in almost a universal language. They all spoke, and everybody heard, everybody understood. A really, truly miraculous moment. There's something about the apostles, right? They can heal. They can even raise the dead. Not all these things have been given to us. So it is with this as well. You will be delivered up even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends. Some of you they will put to death. So even the people that you thought were your family will deliver you over to death. Remember Mark 3, I think Mark 3 and Mark 6, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. And so he ends up saying the ones who do the will of his father in heaven, they are his mother, his brother, his sister. Family's not about blood, it's about faith. Some of you they will put to death. Ten out of the twelve. Judas puts himself to death, and and John survives their attempts to put him to death and dies of old age. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is true of us as well. Um, We are hated because we are of Christ. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. What a fantastic, fantastic reminder We live forever. Even if they kill us, Christ will raise us. You are immortal now by the blood of Christ. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is 70 AD. Jesus very specifically now coming back from the end of the world, coming back from the destruction, well, to the destruction of the temple, I should say. 70 AD, Rome comes, sacks Jerusalem. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that if they abandon God, God will remove them from the promised land. And so it is. Um, Finally fulfilled, and because Christ is the temple for us, the temple doesn't need to be rebuilt. It's going to be torn down. Woe for those women who are pregnant because it's going to be hard for them to flee. It's going to be hard for them to escape the army's coming, there will be great distress and wrath against this people. They have rebelled against God. They have even crucified God. So they'll fall. They'll die. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. There is perhaps a connection to Malachi 4, um, at least grammatically in that, uh, as we would trample on the last day over the stubble of those who have been cut off and this sounds a little bit like that, but Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. The Gentiles is first the Romans, and the Romans are replaced uh, by various groups who take power after them. And Jerusalem has been warred over ever since, when you really come to think about it. It's still fought over to this day by Jews, Christians, Muslims alike. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and that would just seem to be a reference to their own judgment as well, that their time with judgment will come. And that's, the, that's truly the last day at that point. Verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now Jesus shifts back to the end of the world with pictures of even the heavens being destroyed. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 picks up on that, that they will be burned, um, dissolved. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's warning that they won't have missed it. You can't miss this. Nobody will miss this. The overturning of all things. And it will cause great fear among the world as Christ returns. Verse 27. But we need not fear. When you see this happen, straighten up, raise your head, your redemption is drawing near. Your suffering is coming to an end. Your oppression is coming to an end. The the harm, the falling apart of your body is coming to an end. Straighten up. Rejoice. Christ is yours and you are his. Amen. All right, we do have the optional reading, verses 29 through 36. Let's take a quick look at that. I'll just summarize it after reading it. He told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. It's not really a lot new in this. Right? The picture here is that just like you can tell when summer is coming, you will be able to tell when Christ is coming. You should be able to tell. You, should, you shouldn't miss this. His word is not going to pass away. This generation will not pass away till all this has taken place. Um, shift back to the reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and John the Apostle truly not dying um, until it, uh, it all occurred. Watch yourselves that your hearts not be weighed down. It is easy to get caught up in the things of this life. The cares of this life phrase right there, extremely dangerous. And Christians, it happens to us all the time. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. You are caught up in the cares of this life. Your soul is in danger. Repent. Ask God to strengthen you. Ask him to help you to endure. Because these things are going to take place and we are told to pray that we have the strength to escape and to stand before the Son of Man. That is, to make it to the day of judgment by endurance, verse 19, you will gain your lives. This life is not the life. This is a glimpse of what is yet to come. Do not hang your hat on a hook here. This world is being destroyed. Cling to Jesus Christ and to him alone and know that he is yours. Oh,